If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it out. Open up to the book of Isaiah, where we've been camping out for the last couple of weeks in this beautiful Advent series, sharing with a few other churches. Uh, We are closing in on Christmas. And just a bit of a recap or reminder, this word Advent isn't kind of an obscure word. It's actually from Latin, and it means coming or arrival. And the whole idea of Advent is we today are sitting in the crux of these two realities where Jesus has come once, and he is coming again. He has advented once. He has come once in the form of a baby in a manger, growing up in his life, teaching ministry, ultimately his death and resurrection and ascension. And we are living in the wake of that, but we are also glorious gloriously anticipating when he comes back again to finally set everything right. And this does a few different things for us, and it helps us set our mind on Jesus in some really unique ways. And particularly in this Advent season, it reminds us that Jesus is our peace. And we know from the Bible, peace is not just the absence of conflict, but it's the presence of something else. It's the presence of God's intended will, this shalom, this thing operating in the way it should be operating, and he is our peace because only through him, Jesus, can we have peace with God and with other people. And Jesus is not only our peace, but he is the hope. He is the hope of the world, the hope of our church, and the hope for us. Jesus purchased this church with his blood, and it's only when we put our trust in him will our hope not disappoint us. And so Jesus is our peace, he's our hope, and like Brent was sharing sharing with us last week, Jesus is our joy. And the guaranteed way to have a joyless Christmas is to find your joy in something other than Jesus. And Brent, I love that he just comes and stands in front of us, and the first thing he says is, my goal for you is that you would have the most joyful Christmas ever. Why? Because we are finding our joy in Jesus realizing that we are dependent on him. We are in desperate need of real, actual joy because this world is full of joy uh, shams and joy shadows and all these false joys that we continue to seek after and find and be satisfied in. And it's only when we find our joy in Jesus are we actually joyful in life. And today, what we are honing in on today is Jesus is our love because it was the ultimate act of love for Jesus to descend, take on human form, bear the weight of our sin and death, and to actually bring us new life. This was the ultimate act of love. And so that's what we are huddling around today. Paul in his letter to the Corinthians says the greatest is love. He says faith, hope, and love abide or abound. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And that's what we're huddling around today. And one of the things I love about the Word of God, the Bible, is it does just the perfect job of dissecting the human condition. Just from so many different angles, from so many stories, and so many different literary genres, it shines a light on how often we as humans don't get it and miss it. Because to talk about love, we actually have to talk about how unlovely we are or unlovable we actually are in our default state. To fully get and appreciate how much God loves us, we need to fully get how much we don't deserve that love, first of all. How much we don't actually deserve it, and how God overcame that obstacle. 
there is uh, like an age-old question in sociology and psychology and, and human thinking of just trying to understand humanity is, uh, why are we so awful? Like, how did we get this way? What's, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? Right? And so the age-old question of like, why isn't this world the way it's supposed to be? And why are you and I uniquely awful people most of the time? And the question always oscillates between like, is it because we were made that way? Or is it because our environment made us that way? Nature versus nurture, right? And so the prevailing thought or idea in most psychology and sociology is it's mostly environmental, if not all environmental. Like uh, the way of the world is that little babies are born and they're perfect until their parents and the world around them mess them up, right? And there's definitely some elements to that. But if you have kids, you know that from the get-go, they are hardwired with tendencies, with personalities, with certain bents in certain ways. So our oldest son, Calvin, He's really adventurous and really sensitive, and he has been like that from the beginning, absolutely the beginning. And he uniquely knew from the day Truman, our middle son, was born how to push his buttons. Now, I don't think that's something Sherry and I taught him uh, because we, of course, want uh, the, you know, the brothers to get along, to be best friends, to enjoy each other. But from the get-go, Calvin knows how to push Truman's buttons, and Truman knows how to push them back. And Truman is our, our stubborn, more reserved one. And Truman, man, I love Truman. He is a liar. He, Truman is a liar, and he is so stubborn, and he has this just like look on his face when he is digging in his heels. And I'm like, man, is that something Sherry and I have done? Probably, but it's also just who he's been since he was a baby. And Emerson, our youngest, our little baby girl, is so funny and so cute and so bossy uh, and so demanding. She's probably our most defiant child uh, outright, but she does it in a really cute and really manipulative way. And I'm just like baffled by that. I'm like, man, is this the, the culture that is around them, the culture that we created in the house, or were they born this way? Were they born with certain tendencies? Now, the reality is like, it's a little bit of both, if we're being honest, right? We are all born with certain bents in our personality, born liking or attaching to certain things or not other things, but also the world around us influences. And what the Bible does is it actually brings some clarity to how this process works, how you are an awful person. This could be the title of my message, but instead I'll go with love. Um, <laughs> But you're not as awesome as you think you are. And it's, the Bible tells us it's because you were born that way. You were made in iniquity is the language of the psalm. Psalm 51.5, this beautiful psalm, created me a clean heart, O God. That's the psalm. But then we get to this portion where David is saying, I was actually born into iniquity or born into sinfulness. And this idea and this word of iniquity is not just behavior. We're not actually talking about behavior here, but this word iniquity has to do with like identity or a covering on you, something you just can't shake off. And David says, I was born into this. I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. And since we were born with a bent towards error, towards sin, towards iniquity, uh, uh, in Proverbs 14, we have this line. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. 
And so often we have this contrast in the book of Proverbs of, of the ways of God or the plans of God and the ways of man and the plans of man. And we see this contrast back and forth of the way of God is life, is righteousness, is good way, and, and God laughs and smiles on and, and laughs at our plans because he knows they lead towards death. There's something in you that has been there since the beginning that causes your way to be the way of death. This is what the psalmist says, means when he says you were born into iniquity. So the default human condition is sinfulness. And even these cute little babies, I love, we got a bunch of little babies in the room. These little babies are little sinners too. And they were born that way. This is part of the broken and fallen world that we find ourselves in. We all come out with a bent. We're all touched by sin and death and brokenness. And since we're born in that iniquity, that identity, that covering, that has the results of transgressions. I'm using two odd words because these are words that Isaiah is going to use, and I want us to have some framework for them. He says, because of this identity of iniquity or this covering of iniquity, there is fruit to your life, and that fruit are transgressions, which are sins, which are, I mean, transgressions is like a legal term. It means breaking the law. Because of that, there is bad behavior that comes out. But that process, that flow of how we get to where we are, is an important one in the Bible. You are born out of iniquity, and that produces transgressions. And the environment around us amplifies all that. So if you naturally have a bent towards hatred or lust or impatience, chances are you'll be surrounded by people and situations and moments that will amplify those innate desires in the humankind. The environment doesn't cause the iniquity. Iniquity causes transgression, and our environment around us amplifies those transgressions and those iniquities in us. That is all relevant because this is what Isaiah is going to say to us today. You can go ahead and put that up because it's a bit of a loaded statement. Out of love for us and faithfulness to God's own promises, our transgressions and our iniquities are taken from us by this mysterious suffering servant. We're going to read a large chunk of Isaiah here in just a moment, and it might be easy to get lost in where we're going. This is the big idea. This is what Isaiah is trying to tell us, that both our sinful behavior, transgressions, and our sinful posture, iniquity, are taken from us by someone. By someone. And this someone in Isaiah 52 and 53, where we'll be, this someone is known as the suffering servant. Someone sent by God on a specific mission of love to rescue you. And the reason I went through that whole backstory of how awful my kids are and your kids are and everything like that is because to really appreciate and live under and accept this love, we have to understand that we are inherently unlovable that we are inherently in opposition and rebellion to God. And it took a great ultimate act of love and sacrifice to bridge that gap with God, to actually bring us near to God. And I want to tell you why this statement is good news for us today. Because if God is just dealing with our transgressions or our sinful behaviors, making us holy robots and act the right way in all the right circumstances, that's not really good news, totally, is it? 
If God just says, I forgive you, but I'm not going to give you a new heart and actually help you change the way you live and, and give you a heart that won't fall back into sin. If God doesn't straighten out our bent ways, but just simply forgives the, the external brokenness, then we're just going to continue to return to that brokenness over and over and over again. And if that sounds like a familiar pattern, that's what a lot of the Old Testament is. Is God giving his people ways to be made right with him, and then they keep, continue on choosing brokenness and idolatry and, and worshiping other things other than God. But the promise that God has given us through the prophet Isaiah concerning the coming of this suffering servant of Jesus is that he will not only forgive our transgressions, but heal our hearts. He will not only deal with those external behaviors and actions that cause so much wreckage to the people around us, but he'll actually provide a remedy to what's actually wrong with us. He's not just going to treat the symptoms. He's going to cure the disease. That's what Isaiah is on about here. That's what Isaiah is telling us to look for in the, per, in the person of this suffering servant. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, concerning this coming Messiah, concerning Advent, concerning Christmas, says, yeah, I'm going to take care of all this external stuff, but I'm also going to give you a new heart. I'm going to correct your crooked and your bent heart so you don't live broken lives anymore, so you don't have to be separated from me anymore. I'm going to change your heart to change your life. And really, the story of the scripture over and over and over again is God is more concerned with heart change than external actions because he knows when our hearts are transformed from the inside out to be people of love, people of Jesus, it changes all that external stuff. It changes the way we live. Not to, not to beat the analogy again, but if you have kids, you know that just correcting behavior while necessary for a season doesn't actually change the heart. We, Sherry and I, all the time with our, with our kiddos, talk about like a heart for obedience. We want you to want to obey. Not just obey. We want you to want to obey. And what Isaiah is pointing us towards is someone who will give us a new heart. And the suffering servant will have to endure a whole lot to make that possible. He has to overcome a whole lot of things because our sinfulness has created such a wide gap between us and between God. There's an Old Testament scholar who writes about this particular passage, J.N. Oswalt, and he says this. He says, God's power is at its greatest, not in his destruction of the wicked, but in his taking all the wickedness of the earth into himself and giving back love. What we are about to read is Isaiah's picture of this ultimate act of love. You need it. I need it. Humanity needs this ultimate act of love. And according to this scholar, this is God at his greatest. Not destroying those who are wicked, but offering love and taking that wickedness on himself. So here we go into Isaiah. Go to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah is a really fascinating book. Uh, it's, there's a couple of different movements that are happening in here. And just so you know, the part of the, the book that we're in today, 52, it starts back in Isaiah 40, where it tees off this like, 
Isaiah is doing a different thing here. He's moving from just like uh, berating God's people for continuing to be just awful people and sinfulness and turning away from God. And now the, God's people are in exile. And so now he's comforting God's people. So God and Isaiah together are assuring God's people of their salvation in him, of hope for a future. And so we're in this portion of the book where Isaiah is actually comforting those who are in exile. When all has been lost and life seems like it's over, Isaiah is saying, remember God's promise to make things right again. So here we go into Isaiah. I I don't want you to get lost. Imagine a sandwich. There's a proper way to make a sandwich, by the way, and an improper way. I'm going to share with you the proper way to make a sandwich. That is bread on the end. If you need gluten-free bread, that's okay, but there's some bread on the ends here. So think of this passage we are going to be in like a sandwich, okay? Because there's a lot in here. I don't want you to get lost. So think of it like a bread. And the first piece of bread is the servant success, right? This is the first bit that we are going to read today. The servant success. Right? But then, like a sandwich, you get to all the accoutrements that go along with it. So your lettuce, your mustard, your cheese, whatever you're putting on the sandwich, and that's going to be the suffering. Right? So on the ends, the bookends are success, the suffering servant success. And then one layer in on either side is the servant's suffering, what they had to endure to make something possible. But right in the middle, the most important part of every sandwich is the what? The meat. Bring it. Sorry, vegans. It's the meat. That's the most important. Maybe it's imitation meat or whatever. But that's the significance of this passage. So this is how our passage is going to look today. On the outer ends is his success, like what he's accomplished, what he's done, the victory we have now, the inner layers, everything he had to endure to get there. And the very middle bit is the significance of that suffering, okay? So have this sandwich framework in your mind as we go through uh, Isaiah. So we're going to start at the beginning here. We're in this text, and this text is right in the middle of this section, and it hones in on the suffering, ser- uh, the suffering servant, And that all the promises of God will come true because the suffering and triumphant servant removes their guilt before God by his sacrifice. That was enough of a preamble. Let's get to it. Okay, so starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 15. Isaiah says, behold, or actually he's quoting God. God says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be lifted high. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Okay, real quick. This is an important sort of precursor to what we're going to get to because there might be the temptation to feel pity for this suffering servant. And right away, God at the beginning is say, this is not someone to pity. This is someone to worship. We're about to get to some moments that may start to irk our compassion, may start to like make us sad or depressed or take on guilt. And God from the very get-go is saying, no, 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 no. This is a servant to worship. Don't pity him. Don't feel sorry for him. We can mourn what he had to go through because it was our fault, partly, that he had to go through this. But worship him. Lift him high. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. So God's saying, the servant of mine will not look like much on the outside. 
In fact, his appearance is going to be distorted. It's going to be marred. It might even be repulsive. But there is victory. He succeeds. There is redemption through this repulsion. This outward appearance of being marred, of being distorted, that's not the story. But he had to go through that to get the victory that shuts king's mouths and helps people see and understand through his outward-looking repulsion is our redemption. Now, those of us who are versed in the story of God can immediately picture the cross in this moment. The brutal, ugly, beaten body that is on the cross, a repulsive external appearance, one that is marred and distorted. But through that act brings about redemption for you and for me. The servant will not look like much on the outside, but it's through that that we have redemption. And this is the wisdom of God, the undeserved sufferings of Jesus Christ outperforming the best of the world's attempts to be made right with God. In every moment where we try to earn favor or earn love or earn acceptance with God on the cross, that's already been dealt with. And Jesus, in this moment, broken, bloody, beaten, marred, in Isaiah's language, outperforming every attempt at perfectly keeping the law, perfectly making every sacrifice, perfectly making all the right moral choices. That's been done for you already. Okay, next, layer in the servant's suffering, right? So this is the the cheese, the lettuce, the mustard, whatever else you're putting on the sandwich. The next layer in is his suffering, and the suffering that he highlights right here at the beginning of chapter 3 is that he had to live in this life of rejection. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As was one whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not." Part of the suffering's servant life is a life of rejection. Right? The people closest to Jesus couldn't even see his beauty and understand him. His own family misjudged him. And when he traveled with his disciples, it wasn't like what you've seen in movies or plays or whatever. Jesus didn't have this holy glow about him, this like, a, like, thing above his head just attracting people. Right? He was booted out of towns. He was like, people were chasing after him, trying to kill him, trying to stone him. And the woman at the well didn't even know who she was talking to. Even John the Baptist was confused about who Jesus was at multiple points. The people around Jesus did not fully understand him, and part of his life had to be a life of rejection. And now getting into the meat, verse 4, the servant's significance was he is our sin bearer. He did what we could not do. He took on himself what we could not bear so that we could have life with God. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. There's two words, transgressions, iniquities, right at the core of this passage. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the suffering servant, 
the iniquity of us all. You and me. He bore our sins. Even though he was innocent and didn't deserve death, he died willingly for you and for me, bringing salvation to all who would believe. Now, what's fascinating about these couple of verses is Isaiah writes as if we were there at the cross, heaping our grief, sorrow, transgressions, iniquities on him. He invites us into this part of the story because Jesus really was a man of sorrows, but it was not his sorrows. It was ours heaped upon him. Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross, and he did what we had no right to do. God has shifted the blame to Jesus, and he died for guilty people like you and me. I've been reading through the, uh, the, old, like the old Chronicles of Narnia. I got this sweet book. Sherry said we actually had a box set somewhere, but I didn't believe her, so I bought, I bought it. But it's all of them comprised into one huge volume. And I've been just trying to, trying to read them all. And I'm, I'm on The Horse and His Boy, which I fully do not understand at all, if you've ever read that. But I just finished uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, probably his most famous, one of C.S. Lewis's most famous writings. And right at the crux of the story is this moment, and C.S. Lewis is, is brilliant in how he does this, is this moment where one of the, the sons, Edmund, uh, you know, walks in this act of betrayal and, and treachery, and uh, he, you know, he eventually repents, and, and he wants to be on the side of good, the side of Aslan, and, and he repents, he asks for forgiveness, and, and he's healed and all of that, and he's in Aslan's camp, but then the white witch comes and demands her blood. Because a part of the, the deep magic in this story is that she gets the blood of every traitor in Narnia. And you guys, most of you, if you've seen the movie or read the books, knows what happens. Aslan, the great and glorious line, makes this deal with the White Witch. In secret, no one knows about, to exchange his life for Edmund's. The, the guilty one. Like, according to the deep magic, according to the law, he deserved to die. He broke the rules. And Aslan steps in and takes his place. This is a beautiful moment. And, and C.S. Lewis, one of the most brilliant writers in the last few centuries, makes this obvious, pointedly call out to the cross. So you and I were guilty. Because of our actions and the actions of every human, dating all the way back to Adam and Eve, we were guilty and deserved death. But instead of dying, instead of being held to account, Jesus steps in and says, no, I'll, I'll swap myself in for you. And he does it for all of mankind, all of humankind, and that's helpful. But for today, I need you to understand he did it for you. Knowing you living in 2019 in Ventura, knowing all your foibles and all your brilliance and all your beauty and all your missteps, he steps in and says, no, I'm actually going to take this for Jen. I'm going to substitute myself in. I'm going to replace myself perfectly innocent and good, who broke no rules, who did not deserve to die, steps in and takes that for you. Now, why would anybody do that if not for love? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. This is the ultimate act of love that Isaiah points us to, that God has laid on Jesus Christ the iniquity and transgressions of all of us. 
So we're no longer, like in, in, in how we think of salvation, is how we think of our right relationship with God, those things are no longer keeping us from a relationship with God. Those things are no longer keeping us from salvation in him because Jesus has taken that on. Believe it. Entrust your guilt to him. He's already made the sacrifice for you, for me, and the call for us is to believe and to stop trying to atone on our own. With your good works, with your church attendance, with whatever it is, stop trying to atone on your own. With your recycling, with your good like political behavior, with your good like city, whatever that is, stop trying to atone on your own. Now, Living in that atonement has implications into all kinds of our life. Yes, absolutely. But Jesus has already purchased redemption for you with his life. You don't have to buy it again. This is the meat of this passage. If you want something to meditate on as you lead up to Christmas, meditate on through these three verses as you lead up to Christmas. The suffering servant who's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's more to the sandwich, though, because we get the other half of that bookend. In verse 7, the servant's suffering as he died in innocence. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off off the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This was not, the cross is not Jesus caught up in a web of political events in first century Rome. He was not trapped in something beyond his own control. He willingly laid down his life. He made decisions in his life teaching and ministry to tee him up for that moment. He was not overpowered. He chose not to fight back. In both actions and his words, he died in entire innocence. The only person who didn't deserve this took it on willingly. This famous uh, scholar, pastor, R.C. Sproul said this. Sproul said, why do good things happen to bad people? There was only one, and he did it voluntarily. This was Jesus. But it doesn't end with his death in innocence. To finish the sandwich, we start and end with his success. The thing he set out to do, he accomplished. He was crushed, but he was victorious. If the story of Jesus ended at his grave, his heroism would have been admirable, but it would have been futile. But the story does not end there. The empty tomb proves there was more to his death than anyone ever realized. Look at verse 10. Round out our section. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. And if that language sounds familiar, that's the callback to Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent crushes his heel, but he will crush his head. 
We should have that language in mind. Is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes, intercessor, makes intercession for the transgressors. Satan, in this moment, gets that small temporary victory, but Jesus gets the ultimate victory. The death of Jesus was not just a human plot, it was divine strategy to bring about God's redemption. And at his cross, Jesus achieved this ancient promise of God from Genesis 3, verse 15, that he will crush the serpent's head, that he will have victory. And this is why his death produces in us life. And this is why it's good news for you and for me and not something that happened thousands of years ago. But Jesus' act, the suffering servant and his plan of redemption and ultimate love brings about life forever with God and true life here and now. He saved us guilty people and he's going on saving guilty people. The cross isn't this moot religious symbol. It's the power of God, Paul says, the power of the gospel, the foolishness of man, but the wisdom of God. He treats transgressors as his friends and shares his victory with former enemies. You and I, former enemies with Jesus, share in his victory. We share in his life. We share in his righteousness. We share in his right relationship with God. Because of his death, out of love for you and for me, we share in everything Christ achieved on the cross. He stands before the Father making intercession for you and for me, the very ones who drove him to his death. To fully get how much God loves you, you have to fully understand how much you put Jesus on the cross. And that he doesn't hold it against you, but he makes friends of enemies. He brings in close sons and daughters who used to rebel against him, to be in opposition to him. His cross is a power that evil cannot conquer or even understand. But to God and to you and to me, it's everything. Isaiah is answering this question, how can the gracious promises of God come true for guilty people like you and me? It's because this servant, who is high, lifted up, and exalted, willingly laid himself down to live a life of rejection, and suffering, to be misunderstood, to be misjudged, to die an innocent man for your sake, for my sake, so that we would have life. Ultimately, we would have life in him. Out of his intense, unending, unceasing love for you, Jesus took your place. The suffering servant is this beautiful and tragic and glorious account of what it took to make you right with God. What it took for you to enjoy a loving relationship 
with him. That we so often, because of the lack of persecution and the social acceptance of Christianity, often forget when it's so easy to coast on our cultural Christianity and it's so easy to phone in the church thing, this is a stinging reminder of all it took to save you. And that's not to heap on guilt, it's not to heap on shame, but it's to increase our love and worship. He shall be exalted to increase our love and our worship of the one who stepped in our place. This Christmas, I want to be your most worshipful Christmas because you are so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus to step into your place. And we know that when we receive that love, when we enjoy that love, when we live in that love from Jesus, it changes everything. It changes the world around us. It changes other people. It helps move the mission of God forward. Isaiah answers, how can the glory of God come down to people who deserve the wrath of God? That question that's lingering in the background, that question of life, how can God love us? This is maybe a question that you or I are wrestling with consciously, like in our thinking, like actively, how can God love me because I did X, Y, Z last night or last week or in my life? But it also is a question you and I are wrestling with subconsciously in just how we live because so often we are trying to earn the love and favor of God or of other people and we forget we have been so loved by God that he has already sacrificed for you. The truth of the gospel of God, that God loves you. At the heart of everything we find in Scripture, God loves you, and he loves you not in a shallow love, but he loves you in a love that makes intense sacrifices for the people he loves. He loves you enough to send his son to die in our place, take our transgression and our iniquity upon himself for our sake, and bring us life. The gospel also says that being shown that kind of love changes you. Change on the inner life, the inner self, your heart changes your external actions. It changes your posture towards God, your posture towards other people. It changes decisions you make with your time, with your money, with who you spend time with, who you hang out with, what kind of work you do, what you put your hands to. It changes everything. Jesus is our love, and Jesus loves you. He has demonstrated his love already for you in his descent to be made human and to extend to us the love of God through his life, his death, his resurrection, and is demonstrating his love for you right now. And in that is an invitation to live in his love, to build your life on his love. And that's ultimately what I hope we take away from this moment in Isaiah, the suffering servant, is the clear call based on God's own actions, his own faithfulness, in light of this suffering servant, is to build your life on Jesus' love. As the song says, it is a firm foundation. To build your life on his love. He is the suffering servant, and he has suffered for you. And the call to action is not to feel sad or feel guilty or pity, 
but to receive his love, his life, and build your life on that love, something that will not disappoint. Build your life on the reality that he is our peace, he is our hope, he is our joy, and he is our love. We can be with him. We can be like him. We can do the things he did because he has extended love to us. Because God loved first. We can love him, we can love other people, and we can show others a better way, a better life, and even, in this season, a better Advent. We are anticipating something very different this Christmas because of the love of God that's already been extended to us. I want to end with this one more quote, a quote from C.S. Lewis. And he said, God loves us, not because we are lovable, but because he is love. Not because he needs to receive, but because he delights to give. We're going to spend a few moments worshiping and responding. And what I would hope for these few moments as we sing uh, is for you to gladly sit, stand, whatever, metaphorically sit, stand, in this posture of love, in this moment of receiving God's love for you. Most of us do not have a problem, if you've been tracking with the Bible for any length of time, been following Jesus for any length of time, most of us do not have a problem intellectually getting that God loves you. It's cliched enough to where it's drilled into our minds But often, I see this in my conversations with many of you and times in our community group and counseling and and people in the world I'm talking to out at coffee shops, breweries, people actually don't receive God's love. It's one thing to know it, it's another thing to enjoy it, accept it, and let it shape your life. We often think we have to earn it somehow. It's already been given. This love of Jesus that so surpassed your and my sinfulness and brokenness is extended to you. And whether you're new to this Jesus thing or you've been following Jesus for a really long time, this is an invitation to actually receive the love of a good father who delights to give and who has given in the person of Jesus.